All right, we're going to do another uh, kind of book overview this morning. Um, I love um, reading the Bible in in big parts, as you all painfully well know. Um, I, I love seeing it as a whole. In this last month, I've been reading over 2 Corinthians over and over and over again. And, and truly um, shaped and encouraged and strengthened and helped by it, by reading it as a whole. And it's been really helpful to me. And I want to just share with you um, the message of 2 Corinthians. Now, the message of 2 Corinthians is mainly to, to ministers. Uh, it's mainly for them, but it's also for, for people like you, regular Christians who want to follow Christ faithfully and want to grow in in spiritual graces of all kinds. So that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians. You can open up in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's pray uh, before we dig in. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for mothers and how they have been such a rich blessing in our life, such an example of generosity, such a picture of your selfless generosity. We thank you for them, and we pray that we would have hearts that are eager to serve them and, and full of, of joy and thanksgiving for them. And We pray that your word would be working also in our life today, that we would be undistracted um, and focused in it, and that there would be nothing in our way, in the ways of our heart, that would keep us from your word. We pray that your word would be effective and sharp and would reveal us to us and, and show us your grace as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there something in your life that is blocking you spiritually, that is keeping you from spiritual growth? Is there something coming between you and spiritual progress? Do you, do, you, do you ever feel, or do you even feel right now, like you are not all there? Joy is diminished. Peace is lacking. Patience is evaporating. Kindness is nowhere to be seen of. You are not very long-nosed, long-suffering in your life. And you're not growing. You don't feel like you have greater love for Christ. If anything, it feels colder. And you, you think about your own heart and your own life, and you're like, I thought it would be different. I, I don't know what the matter is. I just am a little apathetic. Something is wrong. And, and I would say... More than likely, something is, is, is hindering your spiritual growth because something is blocking your heart. Something is crowding out the grace of God in your heart and in your life. That's a very serious situation to be in. And as we'll see, it produces all sorts of negative fruit in your life. And, and you need sometimes harsh letters, strong words exhortation that is uncomfortable to help you see your spiritual condition in your heart and this is this is what Paul does here in 2 Corinthians it's a it's a letter of grace it's a letter of comfort and you can see this in in the very uh, first chapter verse 3 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and the god of all comforts who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are being afflicted. This is a letter of comfort. 
But it's only a letter of comfort because it's also a letter of exhortation. It's also a letter of revealing, exposing. And, and if we really want to grow in our spiritual life, we need to, we need to grab onto everything that the Word of God has for us. And this is why we need to get to know the letter of 2 Corinthians. So just hold that thought in your head. Hold that idea in your head. Is something keeping me from Christ? We'll, we'll circle back to it at the end, and I hope it will be helpful, and I hope the, the message that 2 Corinthians has for us will be instructive to that end. But let's just start off by kind of getting acquainted a little bit with the, the church in Corinth. We've talked about Corinth a number of times this last spring, and lo and behold, I've been reading First and Second Corinthians, and I talk about it all the time. I guess that's what happens when you read it. But the, the Corinthians received correspondence from the Apostle Paul, and they take up more space... More space is given to the Corinthians than any other church in the New Testament. And as I, as I said on, on a Thursday night a couple months back, the Spirit of God wants us to take a long, hard look at the church in Corinth. Probably because the Spirit of God knows the problems that we struggle with are the same problems that they struggled with as well. We need the church of Corinth because we need to see ourself. And it's helpful for us in understanding the letters to the Corinthians to understand the city itself. Um, The city of Corinth was right on something called an isthmus. It's uh, an island bridge that's connecting lower Greece to upper Greece. And so you could see how it could be a very valuable spot of land to own. It was a city, it was a city that had great prosperity and great pride in its prosperity. Actually, there's a little bit of confusion in background studies with the, the Corinthians because there were two Corinths. There was a Greek Corinth and then there was a Roman Corinth. The Greek Corinth was an ancient Corinth of which a lot of the, the legends come about the Corinthians, about their, their excess in sexual immorality. A lot of that came from the Greek Corinth, but that Corinth was actually destroyed by the Romans because it was so it was so evil and corrupt. And, but because the location, the, the land bridge that connected the two halves of Greece was so valuable because, because ships, instead of going all the way under Greece, could cut across through the middle of Greece and they could save lots of money and time and, and they, could, they, could, they could make more. And they could also have a safer journey because going around the lower the, the lower. Uh, part of Greece was very dangerous, but going right through the middle of Greece was was safer. And so it was it was a very valuable city, and, and sailors would come to the city and pour money into it as they were waiting for their ship to be lugged through the, the, the channel, so to speak. So it was a valuable city, and because it was so valuable, the, the Roman Empire soon remade the city in, in Roman style. It was a very Roman city, not a Greek city. Um, and, and a lot of people would flock to this city because of the opportunities, the economic opportunities, that, that presented themselves by living in Corinth. And it was also a city that was very open-minded. You, you came there because you wanted to make something of yourself and you wanted to be, become powerful, gain wealth, and you were very open-minded in, in terms of religion too. You came with an open mind. Hey, I want to learn something new. Maybe, maybe there's some better religion out there that I can pursue. And when I think about the church in Corinth, actually, I think about ministry on a college campus. Everybody comes there with huge egos, huge ambition, 
and huge spiritual vulnerability. They're, they're willing to follow whatever seems good at the time. That is the church, or that's the city of Corinth. And, and the church had a problem because it was in this city. As commentators are right to point out, there was more, there was more of Corinth in the church than there was a church almost in Corinth. The, the, the worldliness and the, the thinking of the age had really infected the church, as we saw in 1 Corinthians. They, they were a church that was immature. Um, they were a church that was more than likely extremely wealthy because of the city that they lived in, but they were immensely proud and immensely spiritually immature, as we see in 1 Corinthians 3. They thought they had arrived spiritually. And, and you get this from reading both of the letters. They thought they didn't really need the kind of ministry that Paul provided them anymore. They thought they had arrived beyond Paul. They thought they didn't need him anymore. Besides, his weakness and his simplicity was a little bit embarrassing for their Corinthian pride. They wanted a, a Christianity that appealed to their ego. They wanted a, Christ, a Christianity that was without weakness. Because that was the world that they lived in. Strength, power. And for that reason, it was also a church that was a magnet for false teachers. And you see this all the time. False teachers are attracted to Christians who are proud, who think they don't need help anymore from God's truth and God's grace, and want to move beyond um, weakness and the weakness that the gospel presents to a to a life of power and, and strength and control. False teachers are attracted to that because they can take such advantage of that kind of Christian life. And here we have a, a brief history of the church in Corinth. If you could take the next slide, just to kind of give you a, uh, an idea, a history of the church. And the basic history is problems. Problems, 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 problems. Uh, short history of the rise and fall of Corinth Bible Church. Sorry, that was dumb. I, I'll never make that slide again. But here you go, just because it reminds me so much of myself. Um, these are some dates that, that could be. I'm not totally sure about when all this happened, but I have reasonable, reasonable um, evidence for this. But we'll, let's just do kind of a quick overview, try to be really quick here on some of the important dates in the church in Corinth. Starting out with AD 50 through 51 was the founding of the church. Um, this is recorded for us in Acts 18. You can see Paul goes and he stays there for a year and a half, which is a very long time for him to minister in one place, but uh, we get the idea from 1 Corinthians that unlike his beginning ministry in cities like Ephesus where he was teaching them and they were growing in their understanding, all he was really doing in Corinth was constant evangelism, constant um, teaching, patient teaching. They were like infants, he says in 1 Corinthians, and I just had to keep instructing you patiently in the gospel. And by the end of his second missionary journey there, he returns, obviously, and, 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 and leaves Corinth, and then he begins his third missionary journey that takes him to Ephesus, and from Ephesus, he stays there for a long period of time, sorry, not yet, um, where he writes these letters to the Corinthians. And this is where we get the Corinthian correspondence, and this is also where it gets a little confusing, because 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is really 4 Corinthians. Let's just go over this really quick. In AD 55, late AD 55, uh, Paul hears about trouble in Corinth. There's lots of factions going on, and this leads him to write his first letter. 
and also maybe also perform a first visit. You see this lost letter in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, and then even more distressing, something happens after this. Um, it's he, he receives these questions from the church about these problems that they're having. And, of course, this prompts uh, 1 Corinthians to be written, where he confronts them both on their factions, their divisions, their pride, and also on their questions that they have for him. And this is 1 Corinthians. It was delivered by Timothy. And then in AD 56, next slide. There, there's the lost letter. Next slide. Uh, 56. That's where 1 Corinthians happens. Next slide. I'm a little bit behind. Sorry, Meg. He does. He he sends Timothy in AD 56. Timothy arrives with 1 Corinthians, and he sees that the situation is even worse than he thought. So this leads Paul to an emergency visit that doesn't go well. What was going on in the Church of Corinthians, uh, Church of Corinth, when Paul sent 1 Corinthians to them? Well. Between the time that Paul learned about their problems and their questions that they sent him, apparently false teachers had infiltrated the church and were starting to influence them, preying upon their pride. And the situation is much worse, which causes Paul to do this emergency trip that does not go well. And then this leads to him writing a third letter, which is a severe letter. He refers to it as such. It's a severe letter. And this letter, of course, is lost for us. And then, of course, in AD 56, Paul leaves Troas, uh, leaves, sorry, Ephesus and goes to Troas and Macedonia in search for Titus to see how his fourth letter, 2 Corinthians, turned out. So let's see here, we got 56, he leaves, the th- after, I forgot to put this in there, after the, after, during the riots in Ephesus, he's probably writing, or no, never mind, there's riots in Ephesus, then he leaves Ephesus and he goes to Macedonia and he's looking for Titus because he wants to see how this church is responding. And then in Macedonia, which is really Philippi, he hears from Titus, and he hears that the church has truly repented. And this leads him to write his fourth letter that we know of, which is Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Now, just, just a real quick, brief thought here for you. When these false teachers infiltrated the church, they started, they started taking advantage of the Corinthians' pride, for sure, no doubt. But they also started spreading questions in their mind about the importance, the ability, the strength, the value, the authenticity of the Apostle Paul himself. Here's some maybe rumors that they were spreading. We get this from 2 Corinthians. They were spreading maybe accusations and so on. For example, perhaps they were spreading this thought around the Corinthian church. Hey, Paul is just after fleshly things. He's just motivated by the flesh. That's what they say, or that's what Paul says in 10.3, that he was being accused of working according to the flesh. Maybe they were saying, hey, he just wants to lord it over our faith. He just wants to show all the other churches, another one of his churches that's being obedient to him. He just wants another church to kind of pad his fame. He is working according to and motivated by the flesh, which is his own pride. That is what false teachers were accusing him of. Or maybe there's this accusation that we get from 2 Corinthians 2.4. He doesn't really care about you. Paul doesn't really care about you. He just wants to be your Lord. He just, he just wants to be in charge. Look at it. He's, he's telling you about his travel plans, and then he changes them. 
He's probably really frustrated and really embarrassed by you. You're that church that's constantly a trouble in his side and a frustration to his ministry. He doesn't really love you. He just wants you to stop sinning so that he can have a better name for himself. Or maybe they're accusing Paul of this. He is just after your stuff. He keeps talking about this Jerusalem fund. He just wants your money. That's all he wants. He is a peddler trying to get stuff from you. He is trying to take advantage of you. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 16. I myself did, was not a burden to you. Uh, sorry, I'll start in 15. I will most gladly be spent and spend myself for your souls. If I love you more, am I loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, was I crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit? Did I take advantage of you? Through any of those whom I sent you, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Maybe there were some people in the Corinthian church who were saying, he's trying to take advantage of us. Yeah, he's trying to pad his name, his ego. He's also trying to pad his pockets with our cash. We don't know if we trust this, Paul. Or maybe the, the, big, the big complaint that they leveled against Paul was, he is so unimpressive. We're from Corinth. We want to follow someone who's impressive. But Paul is weak. Trouble seems to follow Paul like a magnet. Everywhere he goes, we see weakness, pain, toil, and trouble follow him as well. Do I really want to follow someone like that? He doesn't have that it factor that I want to follow so much. He has a weakness factor that's embarrassing to my sensibilities. Not only that, he works with his hands. He's a tent maker. He must not be a very good minister of the gospel if he has to support his ministry with tent making. He's not very impressive to our sensibilities. Well, after Paul leaves Ephesus and travels through Macedonia, he looks for Titus, and of course he, he finds from Titus that the Corinthians have desired to repent because of his severe letter, despite the, the, the rumors that are swirling about Paul. A majority of the church has said we were wrong. A matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 7.15, it says that they came to Titus repenting with fear and trembling. Despite what these teachers were saying about Paul, they realized that they were wrong. And they earnestly wanted to repent. But there was still a danger in Corinth. There was a minority, a minority that was kind of against Paul that still wasn't sure if they trusted him. We're kind of listening to these complaints about him and agreeing with them. So Paul writes now to restore them, to, to kindly, kindly prepare them for his visit so that it's not unnecessarily 
painful. And that's what we see at the very end of 2 Corinthians. You see this in verse 19 of chapter 12, uh, in verse 14 of chapter 12. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you. Or verse 1 of chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's probably talking about charges against himself. Verse 2, I warned those who sinned before and all others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. You can see he's kind of warning them. I am coming. I am coming because I've heard that you're truly repentant, but I want to prepare you for my visit so I don't have to be severe with you again. But what is Paul after? We, We see it. We see it right there at the end. And it's a sweet thought. In chapter 13, verse 9, we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. This is a letter for their restoration, that they can come to fullness of repentance. The word there, restoration, is interesting. In the NSB, it's translated perfection. It could be a word for maturity. Your maturity is what we pray for. Your spiritual growth, your progress... When we come, we don't want to use our authority to destroy you. We want to use our authority to cause you to flourish and grow. And right now I'm writing to you to make sure there is nothing in our way. Is there something coming between you and the authority of God the spirit of conviction and spiritual growth by the authority between you and, and the written word. That's what Paul writes for. Prepare your hearts. Have open hearts towards me as I come to you. It's your restoration. It's your maturity. It's your perfection that we are after and we are praying for. Now, how do you progress spiritually? Well, Paul kind of gives you hints. It's through obedience. It's through full-hearted obedience to the Word of God by the power of the Spirit. When, When there's something blocking your heart between you and God, when there's something crowding out your love for God, obedience goes out the window, doesn't it? It goes right out the window. But but Paul is saying in, in chapter 1, verse 24... Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in the faith. That's that's what it is. It's, It's obedience that produces joy in your life. Obedience is the means to this joy, however. He says this in 6.15. It's not 6.15. And that's embarrassing to me. But I would like to point out to you He says in 6.11, We spoke to you freely, Corinthians. Open your hearts. And then, yes, this is what it is. It's 7.15. And then in 7.15, he says this, when he's talking about their true repentance. 
He's talking about Titus's affection for them as he has ministered to them in this time. And he says, Titus remembers your obedience and how you received him with fear and trembling. True, true hearts that are unhindered from the from the Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts that obey him with sweet joy. And that's what Paul is writing for. That's what he is after. And what does obedience produce in your life? Obedience produces peace. It produces joy. It produces greater fellowship. It produces growth in your spiritual life. And that is what Paul is after. So how does Paul pursue this, though? How how does Paul write this letter to pursue their full maturity? Well, I think he makes three basic moves in this letter to the Corinthians, and it's kind of confusing. Corinth seems to be, uh, uh, the letter to the Corinthians seems to be kind of uh, in pieces. But I think when you look at it as a whole, you see him making a, a full move towards their restoration so that they can come to full maturity in his presence. And here's three basic moves that I see him making in the letter. And we'll try to cover one of them. Three basic moves, three major appeals that Paul makes. Number one, number one, receive God's grace. Receive God's grace. Before we go anywhere, you need to receive God's grace. Number two, and we see this in chapters eight and nine, experience God's grace grace. And number three, boast. Boast in God's grace. This is, this, is, this is the three appeals by the Spirit of God to our hearts to remove any hindrances, any, anything coming between us and the Lord Jesus Christ in full obedience to Him. Receive God's grace, experience God's grace, and boast in God's grace. Now we're going to cover number one this morning. And I was thinking about it. I could slam this all into you, but then we'd be here until 15 after and you guys would all be dying. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to do number one this morning. We're going to do number two on Thursday and we're going to do number three next week. So this will motivate you to come on Thursday. Experience God's grace. You experience the grace of God in your life through generosity. We're going to be talking about the attitude of generosity, and we're going to be focusing on chapters 8 and 9. And then we're going to talk about what it means to boast in God's grace and how this is such a powerful defense of your heart to boast in right things. But it all begins right here in chapters 1 through 7 in receiving God's grace. Receive God's grace. Jump over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. I want to read this passage. I think the whole letter, the whole second letter to, to the Corinthians is kind of found in kernel form in these few verses. And I'll, and I'll show them to you just really quick here this morning, and then we'll break them down on Thursday, and we'll break them down next Sunday as well. First off, verse 12, let's read this. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. 
For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understood, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you partially understood us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Notice, notice he wants, he wants them, number one, to, to receive God's grace by what? Receiving him. He refers to his ministry as what? Verse 12, by the grace of God. He could have described his ministry with a number of terms, because notice what's in comparison to the grace of God. It's not, this ministry is not by earthly wisdom. He could have said, but by spiritual wisdom, because that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. He could have said, by spiritual power, because that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. But notice how he chooses to describe and define and explain the whole of his ministry, it is a ministry by the grace of God. Will you receive the grace of God? But notice also, he, he, wants, he wants to boast in them at the end of verse 14. And we're going to talk about this on Thursday night. He wants to boast and brag about God's grace and God's powerful work through the generous hearts that he has produced in them. But notice also, he wants them to more fully boast in him and in his ministry as an instrument of God's grace as well in verse 14. And that is what he's going to talk about at the end of the letter, boast in God's grace as a defense mechanism. So you see all of 2 Corinthians kind of tucked away here, but let's just focus on the first point, receive God's grace, receive God's grace. As I said, he describes his whole ministry in verse 12 as by the grace of God. What a wonderful thought. That is how you can truly serve and bless other people when you see how much God's grace is to blame and not your own creativity and wisdom. He doesn't want to be known as Paul, the great missionary. He wants to be known as Paul, the instrument of God's grace, the undeserving instrument of God's grace, the, the chief of all sinners instrument of God's grace. That's how Paul wants to be known. He wants to be known as a channel only, a channel for the blessing of others. That's what he wants to be known as. And, and notice how he describes himself as an instrument of God's grace. He says, we have behaved in the world with simplicity in verse 12 and godly sincerity. Simplicity could be uh, the wrong word. It could be actually holiness. But both words are connected. Holiness produces simplicity. And simplicity is the result of holiness. So either one of those words could fit. But simplicity is an interesting term. It means we served among you without strings. Uh, we didn't have any secret agenda. But what you saw is what you got. We were simple among you. We were, we were, we were all one package. No hidden corners or crevices or alleyways. They were secretly hiding some plan for you. No, what you saw is what you got. That is the result of God's grace. True workers of God's grace are all for the good 
of the people that they are ministering for. Matter of fact, true ministers of God's grace restrict themselves and put limits on their own freedom so that they can more fully serve others. That's a simple picture of God's grace. But notice they also served with godly sincerity. This refers to the purity of their motives as well. Both of these words overlap. And this word is very interesting because it it is used in the pottery world and in the markets. People would hold up a piece of pottery, a a vessel of of priceless value perhaps, and they would hold it up and say, wow, this looks beautiful. And then they take it home and then they realize, oh, this is a fake or a forgery. Or even worse, it's got cracks all over it and they fill it up with wax and paint it over. It is not sincere. And so what you do if you wanted to test the sincerity of something is you would hold it up to the light and you would see the sun come through the wax and you'd say, this is not sincere. Or you would hold it up to the light and you'd say, no cracks. The heat of the sun has shown that this is a true, true vessel of great value. And that's what Paul is saying to them. Look at our afflictions. Look at our weakness. Look at our trouble. And you will see our genuine sincerity for your sake. That is a true minister of God's grace. Someone who is willing to be spent for you to be full. Someone who is willing to be impoverished for you to be rich. That is what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? Who made himself poor so that we could become rich. And that is the mark of his ministers. Well, as I said... Uh, these, this verse here is kind of just like a kernel of the whole. And, and all that Paul has to say in, in, in 2 Corinthians 1 all the way through 7 is just say, look at our ministry. Look at the genuine character of our ministry. We are gospel ministers for your good. And look at the evidences of who we are. We are by your grace or by God's grace in verse 12. We are so that you can experience grace in verse 15. And as our ministry advances, God's ministry advances as well. He uses the word again, grace in 4.15. Paul's whole ministry is grace. And that's what he wants to argue and defend here in this first part. And, And this is really where I get the idea of our heading. Receive God's grace. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. Receive God's grace. And let's just look at a few. Uh, Jump over here. I'm I'm just going to give you kind of a summary of of some of the sections and and what Paul is arguing for. I'll try to be quick. This is obviously one of the greatest uh, letters in the Bible about the true ministry of God's grace. This This is not necessarily describing an apostle's ministry, but this is describing a pastor's ministry. So this is a good list for you to evaluate yourself and also evaluate pastors by um, receive God's grace. And you can try to follow along. Um, First off, receive God's grace, number one, in our ministry, in our sincere concern. Receive God's grace in our sincere concern. This is chapter 1, 15, all the way through 2, 11. Paul is saying in this first section, hey, the reason why we tried you, the reason why I sent that harsh letter to you was because I actually love you. And I actually want you to experience the joy of obedience. And then he also says, receive God's grace in our ministry of, number two, 
uh, our upside down triumph. It's a it's a ministry of upside down triumph. And this, of course, gets us to that very famous passage in chapter 2, 14 and 17, where it's talking about a Roman triumph. And I talked about this to the boys, and I've talked about this to you a little bit, but a Roman triumph was a display of Caesar's power. He would parade, he would parade his, his victory of a great Roman victory through the streets of Rome, and there would be grandstands, and there would be smoke everywhere, and everybody would know that a great victory has happened in the city and in the Roman Empire, and this didn't happen every other day. This was maybe every decade or every 50 years, and one of the, the highest highlight moments of one of these Roman triumphs, as he articulates for us in, in 14 through 17, was at the very end of the line, the slaves that had been captured, the enemy soldiers would be paraded through. And they would be there to show, look at the greatness of our emperor. Look at the greatness of his triumph. And Paul is saying something astonishing here. In these verses, he is saying two things. We are the, the smoke that you smell all over the city, and we are also the slaves that have been captured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we proclaim His triumph. That is who the gospel minister is. They are a captured enemy soldier saved by the Lord Jesus Christ's grace. Or how about this? Receive God's grace in our ministry in the heart. Now, of course, the Corinthians were asking, hey, where are your letters of recommendation? Other, other apostles have letters of recommendation. Where are yours? And, and Paul says, you foolish Corinthians, you are our letters because our ministry is a ministry of the heart. On tablets of the human heart, he says in 3, 3. This is, this is, this is 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, by the way. Or, or how about this? Our ministry is a ministry of greater glory. Paul says this in 4 through 18, it's greater glory. He compares it to the ministry of Moses, and he says, unlike Moses' ministry, our ministry, the new covenant ministry, is a ministry of the heart because it transforms the life from the heart outward. Notice what he says in verse 18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. It is a ministry of greater glory. Number five, it's a ministry of truth, but I can't say ministry of truth anymore because that feels weird in Harry Potter lingo and in our world at large. So let's say a ministry of light. It's a ministry that 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 shows forth the truth of God's word. We see, we see four one all the way through four six, talking about how he doesn't do underhanded things because we are, we are wielding the truth of God. We refuse shady, dishonest practices because we actually have the light of God that truly transforms the heart, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or he he tells them to receive. To receive God's grace in the ministry of their own weakness, the ministry in weakness. And this is, of course, 4, 7, all the way down through 18. And throughout this letter, he talks about his own weakness to explain himself, to defend himself. And, and here he kind of gives us a hint. Even though we bear a priceless message, we bear it in a very weak 
vessel, which is our own human weakness. Weakness here to Paul is not sinful weakness. It's just his own human weakness. And he describes himself as a jar of clay in verse 7. Now, such jars were, were very valuable in the ancient world, not because they were priceless, not because they necessarily had beautiful decorations on them, but because they could do two things. They could last for a long time, and they were expendable. You could, you could keep something in them and protect that thing that was in them for a very long time, but also they could take a beating. They could take a hard beating so the press, priceless treasure inside of the jar of clay could remain untouched. And Paul's essentially saying, hey, we are tough because we have to hold fast to the truth of God. But we are also expendable to show that the power is not with us or our impressiveness, but because of the, the thing that we carry, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and therefore, we have this vision of life that is not just looking at the external things of life, but the eternal things of life. He says in, in 4.16, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, transient, but the things that are unseen, those things are eternal. We have a ministry in weakness to show the greatness of the gospel. Or how about this? Receive the ministry that is ours, that is the ministry of our expectation, or the ministry of expectation. In chapter 5, all the way 1 through 15, Paul begins to talk about what motivates him in ministry. And even though his outer frame, his weak body is being destroyed he has eternal hope verse 1 of chapter 5 because he believes he has a building of God a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens but he also has an expectation right I am going to he says in verse 10 one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ and therefore I earnestly work on this expectation or how about this? Receive the ministry that is ours, that is the ministry of reconciliation. This is what we're here to do. We're here to reconcile sinners to God. We don't see people as merely superficial, as people of the flesh, as he says in verse 16. We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We are, he says in verse 20 of chapter 5, ambassadors. We are representatives. We are, we are travelers who carry the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And if you connect the metaphors, right, they are slaves. They are slaves who are sent to represent Christ Jesus, his authority, his presence, his message, his power. And you... You can be reconciled to Christ as well through the precious message we carry. How can you be reconciled? Reconciled means to exchange a relationship of hostility for one of friendship. How? It's through the message that we present, which is seen in verse 21. For our sake, 
He, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ours is a ministry of reconciliation. Through Christ Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. No longer be enemy soldiers, but now slaves, his own, dressed in his righteousness. That is the ministry. That is the ministry, Paul represents in grace it's it's his ministry but it's all by the grace of god that strengthens him to do it and he testifies to this fact through his pain through his concern through his weakness through his appeal to their heart through his message of transformation through his his joyful expectation in all of his work through the message of the gospel that is reconciliation he testifies to the fact that he is an instrument a messenger an ambassador by the grace of God. As a matter of fact, look at 6.1. Working together with him then, that's with Jesus, we appeal to you. We are ambassadors appealing to you. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Don't miss out on the grace of God. If you miss me, if you jump over me, if you crowd me out of your life, if you crowd the ministry of truth, the ministry of grace, out of your life, you are missing out on grace, the grace of God itself. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. This could refer to two different situations. This could refer to somebody who thought they were a Christian and really wasn't a Christian. Receive the grace of God in vain. It was false. It was, it was phony. And, and how do you know someone is false, phony? They depart when life gets hard. They stop coming to church because it gets hard. Or it could also refer to someone receiving the grace of God in vain who is lethargic in their growth. And this is where we get back to the beginning of our message, right? What is blocking you? What is keeping you from growing spiritually? It's that you are distant from the Word of God. Because you don't like the weakness it produces in your life or the humility that it calls for in your life. And therefore your life has resulted in weakness, in, in lack of sanctification. And, and there's an illustration here that I find helpful, right? It's in my backyard every single day. There's a brown spot that appears and I'm like, what is wrong with my yard? There could be one of two things wrong with my yard. Number one, there's no grass seed in the yard. Never was any grass. That, that would explain why there's a brown spot in my yard. Or number two, it's because that yard refuses water. Or mainly because I'm not watering that yard. When you are not receiving grace into your life, there is deadness in your life. When there's no water, there is no life. Now, to both situations, there's the same answer, and, and Paul gives it, and this is where his appeal is, receive the grace of God, and I'll try to sum it up really quick. Notice what he says in verse 11 of chapter 6, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, our heart is wide open to you, you are not restricted by us. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, and I speak to children here, widen your hearts also to us. Do you feel like there's something between you and spiritual growth? Your heart is the problem. You, you are not restricted. Your way is not made hard by us. Your way is made hard by your own hardness. Why is your spiritual life so hard? It's, it's not because of the leaders in your life, Paul is saying. It's because of your own affections in verse 12. 
your own inner parts, your own heart desires. That's what's causing you to not grow spiritually. Now, the church in Corinth is a great illustration of possibilities for why you're not growing. And let me just run through a list of them really quick, just so you can have them. Why are you not growing? Uh, Go to the next slide here. Number one, is there pride or is there arrogance in your life that will hinder spiritual growth, that will stop spiritual growth? That was the Corinthians' problem. Number two, is there unconfessed sin in your life that will stop spiritual growth, that will stop spiritual progress? Pride is often the result or results in such blindness. Or the Corinthians are also an illustration of this. Is there a love of the world? Is there a worldliness in your life? That could stop spiritual growth and and halt spiritual progress. Or we could even say perhaps, is there a love of money in your life? Could that stop spiritual growth? Could that halt spiritual progress? We, we see this hinted at in Paul. Notice he goes right after this to start talking about money in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and how they need to be generous with their money because it seems to me, Paul's just hinting here, but it seems to me as though the love of money has come between them and spiritual growth. They don't want a hard life. They want an easy life, and money makes it easier. But notice what Mark says in in the Gospel of Mark 4, and this is the, the parable of the soil and the seeds, in Mark 4:18, other seed was sown on the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter and choke out the world, word, and it proves unfruitful. The, the love of money can choke out the word of God from your life. And since you're in Mark, notice also what he says in Mark. Not just money, but also the cares, the worries, the concerns, the desires. Worry can also stop you from spiritual growth. Worry blocks the Word of God out from your life, where, where worry is, where money is, where pride is. And sin will also be remaining in your heart uncontested. And you will experience lethargy in your spiritual life and weakness. And so once again, to go back here, I need to finish up. And this is why I only did point number one. Only did. Paul, in fact, finds them repentant. And this is what we see in chapter 7. Paul says, but you have repented. And then he begins to talk about how they have actually been grieved and they've produced a godly grief that has produced repentance in their life. And listen how he talks about them in chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all afflictions. I am overflowing with joy. Paul is sure of their repentance. And this is another minister evidence of God's grace, right? I knew it. I knew God's grace was sufficient for you, and you have proven it. Verse 10 talks about the evidence of repentance, but let's just let's just hold it off there until Thursday, where we get to talk more about generosity. But I want to just simply ask you this question: Are you someone that are that have kept yourself from the Word of God because of the the humbling nature of its message? 
Are you someone that is resisting because of your desires for the world or your worry or your concern? Is, is, that, what is, keeping, is that what is keeping spiritual growth from happening and being operational in your life? I love the song, Ancient Words, Ever True, Changing Me and Changing You. We have come with open hearts. Let the ancient words in part. That is the ministry of God's grace. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this message. And we pray that we would not have hearts that are blocked up or stopped, but that we would be eager to receive your word and your truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.